Lesson 12 for September 12 through to 18, Paul, Mission and Message. Sabbath afternoon, September 12. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again this week, and as we do, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. We're looking at one of the giants of the New Testament, Paul, and the messages that he brings, the guidance that he gives to the church. And we pray that as we study this week, that your word may become part of our lives, and that the mission that Paul accomplished may be something that we can emulate too. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's read that again, Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, from the New King James Version. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Drawing on Old Testament prophetic messages, Jewish history, and the life and teachings of Jesus, Paul developed the Christian concept of salvation history, all centred on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Because of his cultural background in both Judaism and in Greco-Roman society, Paul possessed sufficient insights to allow him to lift the gospel out from the complexity of Hebrew civil, ritual and moral practices of Jewish life and make it more accessible to a multicultural world. Paul's 13 letters to the believers applied faith to their lives. He touched doctrinal as well as practical topics. He counselled, encouraged and admonished on matters of personal Christianity, relationships and church life. Nevertheless, throughout his letters, his main theme was, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul was not only a man of letters, he also became known as the apostolic missionary par excellence, witnessing to the gospel from Syria to Italy, perhaps even to Spain. Within a decade, Paul established churches in four provinces of the Roman Empire. This week, we will take a look at Paul, both his mission and his message. Sunday, September 13, Greeks and Jews. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. How do these verses help us to understand the different ways people relate to truth? What can we learn here that can help us in our witnessing to various people groups? Let's begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, 
and the wisdom of God. In the exodus from slavery in Egypt, God worked remarkable signs of providential care for Israel. Later generations of Jews developed the expectation that any new messenger sent from God should make themselves known by signs and wonders and miracles. In contrast, in line with their philosophical and scientific heritage, Greeks sought a rational basis for belief, one that would satisfy the demands of human wisdom. Paul did not dismiss the cultural and spiritual heritage of his target peoples, but used it as an entry point for proclaiming Christ crucified. Those who desired signs found them in the life and ministry of Jesus and in the early church. Those who wanted logical elegance and rationality found it in Paul's arguments for the gospel message. Both types of persons ultimately had only one need, and that was to know the risen Christ and, as it says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, the power of his resurrection. How Paul brought them to that knowledge depended upon the people to whom he was witnessing. When Paul preached to Jewish listeners, he based his sermons on the history of Israel, linking Christ to David and emphasizing the Old Testament prophecies, pointing to Christ and foretelling his crucifixion and resurrection, as we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 14. Then Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about forty years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will." From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a saviour, Jesus. After John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had filled fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus." As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. 
and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. And so he started out with what was familiar to them, with what they revered and believed, and from that starting point he sought to bring them to Christ. For Gentiles, Paul's message included God as creator, upholder, and judge. The entry of sin into the world, salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's look at that in Acts 14, verses 15 to 17, and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven, and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And then again in Acts 17, verse 22 to 31, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Paul had to work from a different starting point with these people than he did with the Jews or with Gentiles who believed in the Jewish faith. Here too, though, his goal was to lead them 
to Jesus. So to finish today, think about your own faith. On what is it based? What good reasons do you have for it? How might your reasons differ from those of other people? And why is it important to recognize these differences? Monday, September 14, Soldiers and Athletes As a skilled communicator, Paul, in his mission work, used the familiar to explain the unfamiliar. He took everyday features of the Greco-Roman world to illustrate the practical reality of a new life in Christ. He drew especially from two areas of his convert's world for his teaching metaphors, athletes with their games and the ever-present Roman soldier. Fondness for athletic accomplishments gripped Paul's world, much as it does ours. Ancient Greeks transmitted their love of competition by holding, over the centuries, no fewer than four separate cycles of Olympic-type contests, located in different parts of Greece. Romans inherited and further promoted athletic competition. Foot races were the most popular events and included a race of men wearing full suits of military armour. Wrestling also was popular. Athletes trained assiduously and winners were richly rewarded. Ethnicity, nationality and social class mattered little since endurance and performance were the goals. Question. What key lessons for the Christian life would Paul's readers have found in the following passages? 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, Galatians 5, 7, 1 Timothy 6, 12, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 5. Let's begin with 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24-27. to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And Galatians 5 verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? First Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Starting with Marius, Roman emperors replaced temporary soldiers with full-time career warriors, garrisoned them across the Roman Empire, and upgraded and standardized their armor and weapons. By Paul's time, soldiers were recruited from various ethnic and national groups, whether or not they were Roman citizens. In return for rewards at the end of their term of service, soldiers pledged total loyalty to the ruling emperor, who in times of conflict personally led them into battle. Question. In the following passages, what comparisons did Paul make between soldiering 
and the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, 1 Timothy 6, 12 and 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Well, let's start with 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Ephesians six ten to 18 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil." For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And First Timothy 6.12 again, Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And Second Timothy 2, verses 3 to 4, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. In what is perhaps Paul's final letter, he applied both soldiering and athletics to his own view of his life as a Christian missionary. 2 Timothy 4 verse 7 I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So, to finish today... In what ways is faith a fight, and in what way is a race? How have you experienced the reality of both metaphors in your own Christian experience? Which metaphor best describes your own experience, and why? Tuesday, September 15, Paul and the Law. Romans 3.31 reads, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What law must Paul be talking about here? In English translations of Paul's letters, the word law appears about 130 times, and in Acts of the Apostles, about 20 times. Paul endeavoured to get his hearers and readers, regardless of cultural background, to understand that law carried several meanings, especially for Jews. Laws, such as the Ten Commandments, are in force for all people at all times. But other kinds of laws in the Old Testament and in the Jewish culture, Paul did not consider in force for Christians. 
In his writings, the Apostle used the word law broadly in reference to rules for religious ceremonies, civil law, health laws, and purification laws. He wrote about being under the law in Romans 3.19 and about being released from the law in Romans 7.6. He described a law of sin in Romans 7.25, but also a law that is holy in Romans 7.12. He mentioned the law of Moses in 1 Corinthians 9.9, but also the law of God in Romans 7.25. Confusing as these phrases may seem to non-Jews, for the Jewish believer brought up in the Hebrew culture, the context would make clear which law was meant. Question. Read Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, Romans chapter 2, verses 21 to 24, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, Ephesians 4, 25 and 28, Ephesians 5, 3 and Ephesians 6, verse 2. How do these verses help us to understand that God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, was not nullified at the cross? First of all, Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet... And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. And Romans chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Ephesians 4, verse 28 Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Ephesians 5.3 But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. And Ephesians 6 verse 2, Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise. Paul realised that the ceremonial laws detailing how one approached God through priesthood, Hebrew sanctuary and sacrifices ceased to be valid after the crucifixion. They had served their purpose in their time, but were now no longer necessary. This point would become especially apparent after the destruction of the temple. With the moral law expressed by the Ten Commandments, however, matters are different. In his letters, Paul quotes some of the Ten Commandments and alludes to others as universal ethical demands on all people, Jewish as well as Gentile. Having written against the practice of sin, Paul would not in any way have diminished the very law that defines what sin is. 
that would make about as much sense as telling someone not to violate the speed limit, while at the same time telling them the speed limit signs are no longer valid. Wednesday, September 16, The Cross and the Resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 reads, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. No question, the cross of Christ was central to all that Paul lived and taught. But Paul didn't teach the cross in a vacuum. Instead, he taught it in the context of other teachings as well. And one of them, perhaps the one most intricately linked to the cross, was the resurrection, without which the cross would have been in vain. Question. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 22. What do these verses say that show how crucial the death and resurrection of Jesus are to the gospel? Why is a proper understanding of death as a sleep crucial for making sense of these texts? That is, if the dead in Christ are already in heaven, what is Paul talking about here? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Unfortunately, the majority of Christian traditions, as well as non-Christian religions, believe strongly in the immortality of the human soul. Against this belief, however, Paul emphasized repeatedly that, one, only God has immortality, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honour and everlasting power. And two, immortality is a gift from God to the saved. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And three, death is asleep until Christ returns. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And also 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6 to start with. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Worship in almost all religions, includes numerous false teachings based on the false concept of the immortality of the soul. These errors include things such as reincarnation, praying to saints, veneration of ancestral spirits, an eternally burning hell, and many New Age practices such as channeling or astral projection. A true understanding of the Bible's teachings on death is the only true protection against these great deceptions. How unfortunate, too, that those who show the strongest inclination against accepting this truth are Christians of other denominations. And so to finish the day, a believer closes his or her eyes in death, and after what seems like a moment of darkness and silence... He or she is awakened to eternal life at the second coming. What does the truth about the state of the dead reveal to us about God's character? Thursday, September 17, Getting Along Paul was a hard worker with a strong personality and singleness of purpose. Such persons can be loners with few friends, but many admirers. However, on his travels, two or three fellow workers often accompanied Paul. At least eight of these close fellow workers are mentioned by name. Well, let's have a look at some of those. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And Acts chapter 15, verses 22 and 37, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And verse 37, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. And Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And Acts 19, verse 22, So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, 
Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. And the same chapter and verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. And Philemon, verse 24, which reads, As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow labourers. To this must be added Paul's greetings to 24 people in Romans chapter 16, in addition to general greetings to households. The Apostle believed in teamwork, especially in pioneering situations. At the same time, however, he did at times have conflict with fellow labourers. Question. Read Acts chapter 15, verses 38 to 41. What happened here? And what does it tell us about the humanity of even these great workers for the Lord? Acts 15, beginning at verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia, and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. From the Acts of the Apostles, page 169 and 170, it was here that Mark, overwhelmed with fear and discouragement, wavered for a time in his purpose to give himself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. Unused to hardships, he was disheartened by the perils and privations of the way. This desertion caused Paul to judge Mark unfavourably, and even severely for a time. Barnabas, on the other hand, was inclined to excuse him because of his inexperience. He felt anxious that Mark should not abandon the ministry, for he saw in him qualifications that would fit him to be a useful worker for Christ. End of quote. The account in Acts reveals that Paul expected his companions to persevere in the toils and perils of their mission. For Paul, the close team constituted a church in miniature. He stressed the importance of setting a good example, the imitation model of mission. Dutiful, yet loving relationships among team members became a pattern for the churches, which were often based on households. The team also provided an ideal setting for the training of new evangelists and missionaries. Of course, at times, things didn't always run smoothly, as in the case of John Mark. Question. Read Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 11. What does this text reveal about growth and forgiveness? Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So to finish today, we all make mistakes. How can you learn to forgive those whose mistakes have hurt you? And think also about those whom you've hurt with your mistakes. How have you sought to bring healing in those situations? Or, if you haven't yet, why not do it now?
Friday, September 18. The Apostle Paul has been compared with the butterfly effect in chaos theory that the flap of a butterfly's wings in California caused a hurricane in Asia. His work as a writer and preacher helped turn a Jewish sect in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire into a world religion. The ideas put forth in his thirteen letters have probably exerted greater influence than any other ancient Greek literature of comparable size. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. 1. Paul avoided martyrdom by fleeing to Athens, the intellectual centre of the Greco-Roman world. Cities provided shelter for refugees, including Christians. The Apostle lost no time. After observing the city's religious monuments, he reasoned with the Jews and preached in the marketplace. Let's have a look at Acts 17, verses 16 to 31. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean." For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from one of us, from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead." What approach does Paul take with these people, and how does it help us to understand the need to tailor the message for various people groups? At the same time, look at how Paul did not in any way water down or compromise truth in order to reach these peoples. In our attempts to reach others, how can we be certain that we don't compromise core beliefs? 
Question 2. Why is the state of the dead such an important teaching? What are some of the many errors and deceptions that an understanding of this truth protects us against? What about your own culture? What are some of the beliefs against which this truth can be a bulwark? Question 3. Dwell more on the question of the role of science in regard to faith and the role of logic and reason as well. In class, let those who are willing talk about how they came to faith and what role such factors as science or logic and so on had in their experiences. Also, what role should they have, not just in coming to faith, but in maintaining faith? And question four, what about the majority of people in your society? What kind of background do they have? What kind of beliefs are the most common? Based on your understanding of their beliefs and background, think through carefully the best approach to reach out to them. What are some entering wedges that will allow you to make contact in a way that will not immediately offend them? Inside Story Our mission story this week is the continuation of The Stolen Sermons and it's titled The Stolen Sermons Part 2 and it's by Gamini Mendes. I remained in the hospital for two weeks in great pain but slowly began to recover. Many pastors came to visit me. Some said that God struck me down because I had visited the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Adventist pastor visited me several times and brought me a little book entitled The Great Controversy. I had lots of time to read, and by the time I was discharged, I had finished the book. When the Adventist pastor came to visit me at home, I had many questions. When I had recovered enough to preach at my church again, I went back to visiting the Seventh-day Adventist Church to borrow the pastor's sermon notes. Of course, I didn't tell him what I was doing, nor did I tell my own congregation where I was getting my sermon material. One Sabbath, the Adventist pastor preached a sermon on the Sabbath. I borrowed that sermon too. After I preached, members of my church asked me why we worship on Sunday if Saturday is God's holy Sabbath. Suddenly I realized that I was trapped by my own cunning. I needed more information so I could answer my congregation's questions. I visited the Adventist pastor and asked him to study the Bible with me, beginning with the Sabbath. After we studied, I asked him all the questions I thought my congregation would ask. Then I called my church members together to give them the same Bible study on the Sabbath. Not all were interested in this new truth, but many wanted to learn more. Word reached the church leaders in my denomination that I was teaching Seventh-day Adventist doctrines. They told me that if I insisted on preaching like an Adventist pastor, I couldn't continue as pastor in my church. By this time I believed in the Sabbath and other Bible truths I had learned through borrowing the pastor's sermons. I decided to become a Seventh-day Adventist, turn my church into a Seventh-day Adventist church, and bring as many members of my congregation with me as would listen. Sundays became Bible study days in my church, and several Adventist pastors came to help me teach the people. For three or four months we studied the Bible intensely and tried to understand God's will for our lives and our church. Then we held a baptism in which twenty members of my church joined the Seventh-day Adventist family. Later, thirteen more people were baptized. 
more than half the members of my little congregation have joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Gamini Mendes continues to work as a pastor in the same area of Sri Lanka where he once pastored a charismatic church. He now has three Seventh-day Adventist churches. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.